Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46, starting in verse 28. Lord willing, if we get to the end of this outline, we'll be part of the way into the next chapter. Um, we're a little askew with the chapter breaks at this point, but we're trying to uh, follow the events the best that we can. And we've entitled this outline, Joseph Sees His Father Once More, because this is the first thing that we see in the set of text that we begin with. Genesis 46, starting in verse 28. And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph. And speaking here of Israel, he sent his son Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen, and Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen, and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. And Joseph said unto his brethren and unto his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh and say unto him, My brethren and my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come unto me. And the men are shepherds, for their trade hath been to feed cattle. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and shall say, What is your occupation? That ye shall say, Thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth, even until now. Both we and also our fathers, that we may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. So we tease this last verse in our last lesson, that the Egyptians considered shepherds or, or the, the mingling, the working with cattle, the working with their hands, really, uh, with livestock to be an abomination, to be gross and disgusting. Uh, and the reason that we see Joseph mentioning it the way he is here is because he's selected Goshen uh, as a land for his people. It is a fruitful land, and pretty relatively lateral across the map here with Canaan, where they're coming out of, so they're familiar with that uh, that climate of what they're going to need to do for the cattle here being very similar to what they had to do over there. Uh, so he's not trying to deceive Pharaoh necessarily, but he knows what Pharaoh will do with shepherds. He knows the response the Egyptians will have to shepherds. They're going to be okay with putting those shepherds over yonder in a 900, mile, a 900 square mile patch of land rather than having them in their backyard. That's the expectation that Joseph has uh, and it's likely what he thinks Pharaoh will respond to. We'll get to Pharaoh's response in a minute. Notice here that Judah is now one of the trusted ones. And, and we know from the changes we've seen through, uh, through the scripture with Judah, he should have been all along. But Israel now is confident in Judah. Uh, and it doesn't have anything to do really with the fact that Judah was uh, willing to take that oath on behalf of bringing Benjamin back alive. As much as all the things that have come to pass... Jacob's uh, confidence in what the Lord is using his boys for, or his men at this point, uh, has brought him to the point where Jacob sees him as a leader, which is good. It's also why we keep hearing Jacob say things like, I can go now. It is enough now. Uh, I can die now that I've seen Joseph is alive. A father is not likely to be truly at peace and to leave this life until he's seen that his children are going to be okay. Uh, and, and this is not something I know from experience, but it is something we see throughout Scripture. It's something that we see throughout art as far as the movies and, and literature go. But it's also some things that we see at funerals and we see with uh, those on their sickbed, such as Brother Horn has been for so long. 
They want to make sure their children are okay. They want to make sure their children are heading in the right direction. And though Jacob can't do that for his boys, he's got to be able, for his, himself, he wants to be able to see that there's some fruit there, that they're heading in the right direction. Meanwhile, Joseph is pre- uh, preparing the way with Pharaoh, finding them places to live and occupations to follow while in the land. Since Egypt is a picture of this present world system, it does not surprise us that shepherds are an abomination to Egyptians. It's an abomination to unsaved people. Our Lord is the good shepherd, and the world will have nothing to do with him. This study in parallel with the Lord's ministry, we are already seeing that. The Pharisees aren't even really happy that he's touching sick people. They say it's over the Sabbath day. They make it about religion and tradition, but they're not happy he's doing it at all. When you break it right down, they were the gatekeepers before Jesus came along. They were the ones that held folks at bay from the true knowledge of how it is to access the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is spoiling all of that in our afternoon study. This is the first time in uh, over 22 years that Israel sees his son Joseph again, the oldest of Rachel's kids. It's one thing for Joseph to have missed his father, whom he knew to be alive at least for the last couple of years. But can we even try to fathom the feeling of basically having Joseph return from the dead to his daddy? I had mentioned a few lessons ago the only, the only thing I can think of that would even come close. And, and as I mentioned, I long for the day to get that call from my brother that his boys come home. I don't think the phrase wept on his neck a good while that we see in the text requires a whole lot of further explanation. Goshen, the land Joseph had selected for his family, was extremely fertile, as we've mentioned, and essentially unsettled by the Egyptians based on its description in the text and what we were able to figure out from commentators who have studied that time period. It was adjacent to Canaan, as we said before, so the agricultural climate would have been very, very similar. And as we mentioned last time, shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians. So this idea of a land kind of quarantined away, I know humanity loves to quarantine, we're all familiar with that, but quarantine these shepherds over there. Egyptians like their cities. They like their fancy. They don't like their shepherds. They don't like to deal with the concept of the cattle and the livestock. And, and you might say a society that doesn't really want to know where its food comes from, which is a dangerous thing, Americans of 2024. It's likely Joseph didn't spend a lot of time, if any, uh, telling Pharaoh that this was his people's uh, profession from birth. If we look back at Jacob's time with Laban to, uh, to see that he, he brought something to the trade that was more natural than most neighboring nations. We know that it's a, it is a natural skill that Jacob has. He had it underneath his father, Isaac. And then when he goes over with Laban, he's doing some things there. If you go back and look at the Mandrake affair and the striping that he did to try and increase the fertility of the cattle, he was doing some things Laban had never even heard of, never even would have dreamed possible. Uh, and if you go back and listen to some of those messages, uh, it worked. Scientists today are proving that it worked, which is very, very Uh, fascinating. It'd be better for Israel to be separated from the rest of Egypt for that reason. Stressing that in conversation with him now would make it easier for them to establish themselves in Goshen, away from the Egyptian masses. It would be easier, as we talked last time, for the nation of Israel to be an actual true nation in and of itself inside of another nation without blurring any lines. 
And it's, of course, a good thing for God's elect people today to maintain a separation, for there is a requirement of us to be holy. And we can't be holy if we're also friends with the world. What we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and you'll forgive me, but I always, when I read this portion of text, I carry it into the next chapter. So if that drives you crazy, I will have to accept it today. But it says, be ye not equally, uh, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers there in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, Paul says. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. We've got two different titles here. Uh, Just a few verses ago, it says, As God hath said, here we have the Lord Almighty. And then we have a therefore which is why we had to go back so far into 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to get this. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Consider James 4.4. We read this, um, I think, in a main service in the last few weeks. James 4.4. James says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. In our time, we see clear lines being drawn constantly on whose friend and whose foe. Uh, Right now, it's the reason our own president is so hesitant, because he doesn't know. He's crossed so many lines, he has no idea who the good guy is and the bad guy is. What will he do about the border situation? I read on Yahoo today. If I'm stealing Sunday school, I'm sorry. But I I read on Yahoo today. The press is turning on him that President Biden feels we should close the borders. And they said this contradicts greatly his very first thing that he did when he stepped into office four years ago. Uh Uh-huh. It doesn't contradict what the other president had done. But he doesn't know what to do about the drones that kill our soldiers. It's interesting. Be careful. Let's move on. Genesis 47. Now, just looking at the first 10 verses to get, to get into this. We read, Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took some of his brethren, even five men, and presented them unto Pharaoh. Now, I want to stop a minute because when we... He entered into this last section of Genesis. We talked about likely who the chroniclers are. And and it's pretty clear as you go through Genesis, uh, it usually ends with, and this is the generation of, and that gives us the idea who wrote the preceding verses. This entire section, the argument has been that the sons of Jacob wrote it. And though that seems really hard to conceive at first, we're about to see a point in their timeline where they're all together. And this is why we have this defense. Because the story about Judah and Tamar, Joseph couldn't have written about that. He wouldn't have known a whole lot about it unless Judah told him. The story about anything that happened back in Canaan, when Joseph was sold out of the pit, Joseph wouldn't have had access to a lot of that either unless his brothers told him. And the story of what Joseph tells Pharaoh 
And the story of everything about Joseph's life for the last 20 years, none of his brethren would have known anything about unless he told them. So I just want to pause for a moment and, and again verify the validity of God's written word. The brothers had to write all this together. Starting in, I think, the late Genesis 30s, up until now, it had to be the sons of Jacob because not one person, not one man, knew all of what we've been privy to uh, thus far. Moving on. And Pharaoh said unto his brethren, unto Joseph's brethren, What is your occupation? Just as Joseph said he would. And they said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. They said, moreover, unto Pharaoh, and here's a part you might want to mark in your Bibles, for to sojourn in the land are we come. This is not a permanent move, in other words. They're, they're having an extended stay there, but they're not moving in to stay. This was their intention all along. It might be interesting because this hasn't come up yet. Now, they've got a safe place to be. Certainly, we wouldn't expect uh, Jacob and his sons to take advantage of the hospitality of Pharaoh. But just to make it even more clear, they say before Pharaoh, we're just coming to sojourn here. We'll get on to that again in a minute. For thy servants have no uh, pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them ruler over my cattle. See, Joseph was expecting that Pharaoh would likely see Goshen as a good place for the shepherds and their livestock to be, but I got a feeling he wasn't fully expecting that Pharaoh would also want one of them to be in charge of his cattle. And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How old art thou? Wonderful greeting. And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are an hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. In these verses we see, once again, Joseph's great respect for the authority that was over him. He didn't... Uh, he didn't make assumptions that Goshen was a definite place in which they would all go. He had to present it before Pharaoh before they could fully make it official. But he had respect for Pharaoh and that he went in under Pharaoh, then brought in the five brethren that he brought in as representatives. He had these brethren answer for themselves. Joseph wasn't trying to fool Pharaoh. And then had an open conversation with Pharaoh where Pharaoh again uh, repeats his confidence in Joseph. And, and encouraging Joseph to put them in the best place for them to be, for their sakes as well as for Egypt's. And then he goes a step further and says, if one of them be able and willing, put them in charge of my livestock as well. Yes, he had in mind for his family to be in Goshen, but it was still Pharaoh's decision to make. He settled the family uh, there temporarily while he took the five representatives in before Pharaoh. And when he presented them, he mentioned with his father, and brethren, also their flocks and their herds. He, he made sure to mention that the animals were there as well. As his brethren were presented, as anticipated by Joseph, Pharaoh asked of their occupation. Notice that they confidently expressed that they were shepherds and that the family had been for generations. 
I can't help but think about the last time these brethren were presented before a ruler or a lord of Egypt and how rocky that was. And now they stand before Pharaoh. I understand these are, these are men. These are positions given to them of the world. But understand these men were left to, uh, left to themselves would have died in Canaan. But as they've come to draw nigh unto God, they now stand before kings. This is the work of the Lord, beloved. They could never have earned an audience with Pharaoh on their own. And then they stand confidently and they proclaim their profession to be the abomination of the Egyptians. And not only are they granted the the, the, the fattest of the land, but they're also granted opportunity to see to the cattle of Pharaoh. The word sojourn here gives the context that they had come only for a time due to the famine. Their hope was to return to the land God had promised unto them at the conclusion of the famine, which we know because last lesson we talked about that being Israel's decree after his death. Our exceeding and abundantly gracious God gave Pharaoh the following answer to speak before Israel's family there in verse 6 of chapter 47. The land of Egypt is before thee. There's not a, a, a nation's leader today that would, well, I guess he kind of did to those who wanted to cross the border illegally, but that would actually stand in front of foreigners and say the land of America, the land of Russia, the land of Germany, whatever, the land of China is before thee. But here, here's Pharaoh, one more thing, not just Egypt and not just the Hebrews, but in the time of famine, This is the amount of confidence that God allowed for the Egyptians to experience by His gracious hand. That in the time of this famine, what do we say, two and a half years into a seven-year dearth? He says, here's Egypt, open for business, essentially. We can't allow this to escape our minds for a moment, beloved. This is not the time in which borders would be open in our reality This is the time in which even idiot presidents would close the borders. That's why I brought it up. I had a reason, Isaac. The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen let them dwell. And if if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle too. Even employment overseeing Pharaoh's cattle was on the table for these Israelites. This speaks a lot to where Pharaoh's mind is. We're going to close on that in just a moment. But we, we may, in the back of our minds, have thought, well, Pharaoh's kind of saddled with Joseph. Nobody else could interpret the dream. And when they had to try and figure out what to do about the dreams that God had given Pharaoh, Joseph had the answers, and, and he's been put in place, and it's working. We've got this Hebrew doing things, got us through the good years, getting us through the bad years. That's worked out great. But surely we're not going to make this mistake again, put a Hebrew into power. But Pharaoh does say, if one of your brethren, and for the record, all of his brethren are Hebrews, is of activity, is able, we'll put him in charge of my cattle too. I will employ another Hebrew. Here's Egypt. Here's a job. Here's Goshen. Come on in. Israel now stands before Pharaoh at the end here. So I want to again revisit some of the previous conversations between God's men and and Jacob's lineage and Pharaoh's. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. 
I know we've gone over quite a bit of this, but it's just amazing to compare and contrast. Uh, this is the same Egypt. It's not a different Egypt. And like Americans, they have their own history. They talk about these things. They would have passed down stories. Remember that time Hebrews came in and lied about their wives? So in Genesis 12, starting in verse 14, we're, we're going to read to, to verse 20. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman Sarah, that she was very fair, very beautiful. The princess, or rather the princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abraham well for her sake. He gave Abraham some things, in other words, because of how great this beauty, this beautiful woman is that he brought into their land. He had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah or Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, here's the conversation. What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and she sent, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had, which is including the things he was just entreated with a few verses before. Look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and again all that he had, which included Lot with him, into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And you, if you haven't marked it there, he also at this point has acquired Hagar. She's an Egyptian. This is his only trip into Egypt where he was entreated with many things, including handmaids and handservants. She came back out of there with him. So in that one encounter, way back in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, not only was the previous generations of Jacob illustrated, but so were the previous generations of some of his cattle. I don't know if you thought about this, but some of the cattle that is reproduced and reproduced, because if we, if we need to go all the way back to Genesis 1, that's how cattle work. They begat more cattle. They may have likely also got some Egyptian blood in them. We've got some of Laban's cattle blood in them now too, but there's some Egyptian heritage to these cows. But also the means for how Joseph was brought to Egypt to begin with. Genesis 37, verses 27 and 28. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Remember who Ishmael was? Hagar's son. And Hagar came out of Genesis 12 and Genesis 13. So it is an amazing amount of research to pull all of that together. And thankfully these writers have already done it for us. Uh, I wish they had just written in the margins foreshadowing. This is coming back later. Uh, and you'll see in Exodus, that I've got that outline pretty well set to go. There's a lot of moments in the outline where I literally have an all caps. Wow! Can you believe this? Because this is, we're coming to the end of Genesis here. And Genesis 12 and Genesis 1 that we just mentioned, all still very much in play. And we just talked about divorce, which also brought us back to Old Testament and showed that it's also still very much in play. This whole book, old to new, is very real and still very important to us even now. This conversation may have been longer between Jacob and Pharaoh, but we've been provided with all that we are required by our writer. 
Jacob describes his pilgrimage to have been 130 years. This word pilgrimage, this is his life, 130 years. We know that uh, because here in a minute, we're going to talk about when he dies in Genesis 47, 28. Abraham died at 175. Isaac, though he thought he was at the end of his life at about 100, he lives to 180, according to Genesis 25, 7, uh, for Abraham and Genesis 35, 28, for Isaac. Uh, if you want to read where he's belly aching about his age, go back and read when uh, this Jacob deceives him. It comes up there. He'll live, Jacob will live another 17 years because Genesis 47, 28 tells us he dies at 147. Israel's comment about his days being few and evil, this word evil also means difficult. He's just simply telling the truth. It's not really about him complaining. He's just simply telling Pharaoh the truth. Pharaoh at this point knows that uh, Jacob's Hebrew God is real. He's learned that from Joseph. And maybe it's a kindness that Jacob also tells him right here and now, two and a half years of famine out there has been rough, but by the way, God's people suffer sometimes. Our good is our God is that much better than the suffering. He is that great. But we do suffer sometimes. They've been few and evil or difficult. Everything we've read of his words over the past chapter and a half dictate that his heart, uh, uh, that his heart rather, was jubilant over the survival of all of his men, his sons. He was at peace with God and the life that he had had. Hebrews 11.13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Here's something to think about. When Jacob sees Joseph again, remember those dreams? Remember all those promises that God had made? To Jacob individually, all the promises that God had made to Abraham and all the promises to Isaac, the one in between, all of those promises come back to the surface for Jacob and he says, wow, it is enough. My Joseph yet lives. It is enough. He's exceeding and abundantly doing more than I ever could have asked or hoped for. He stands before Pharaoh and says, my days were few and evil, few and difficult. I pray that at the end of our journey, we say few as well. Because though they were difficult, it was a short journey to get to our God. It was a short journey to get to paradise. But for him, these last, if it's a two and a half week journey, this past month for him, God brought everything right back. He goes to that altar. God reunites with him there at Beersheba and says, you can go to Egypt. He was already going. We, we talked about this, but he confirms for him, yes, go on to Egypt. You will be buried in the land of promise. But I will be with you there in Goshen. I will be with you there in Egypt. For Jacob, it's more than he's going to be with us there in Goshen. It's that he's been with us all along. Remember how ugly and sad the Shechemite Sacrifice, uh, 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 boy, I've been using that term so much, can you think? Massacre. The Shechemite massacre, remember how evil that was? But God was with us because he led us out of there for our safety. He led us to an oak to bury Rachel, to bury my father's handmaid that had been with us since I was young. He's been with us even 20 years while I thought Joseph was dead. Joseph's leading in Egypt because God had a plan for his people. Jacob, of all people, says, who, who would have thought? I have no doubt 
that Jacob still lost a little sleep over what he did to Esau. We know because when he encountered him, Esau was way more compassionate and loving than, than Jacob had prepared for him to be. But in the end, Jacob sees the plan of God. In the end, Jacob sees that all has been uh, aligned for the betterment of God's people. And that even his own sins could not derail that. Now, as we close, I'd like to just reflect on the testimony that had been presented unto this Pharaoh. I know we talked a lot about the Pharaoh, but bear with me. Think about his testimony since God first gave him those dreams. We talked a little bit about Jacob's testimony and experience since the dreams Joseph confessed, but think about the dreams Pharaoh had and everything he's now seen for what would have been nine and a half, almost ten years. He received horrible dreams that could not be translated by anyone under his counsel. The wizards, the magicians, none of them could do anything about it. Only this man serving in his own prison could offer any hope. That man deferred the credit of that ability to a Hebrew god. I'm sure at the time, Pharaoh said, what man won't take credit for doing this amazing thing when he's the only one who can do it? God's man, that's the answer, because he knows where it's coming from. Upon further inspection, Pharaoh could see that everything Joseph had ever been involved with since coming to Egypt or being brought to Egypt was made to prosper. How could that be? I mean, Pharaoh, of all people, the leader of Egypt, he's got to ask the question, how's this little Hebrew servant making things so profitable? Joseph interprets the dream for him and says the dreams are from his God, and so was the interpretation. Joseph described that, uh, what they would need to do for what was coming, and Pharaoh trusts this man. Potiphar's servant, demoted to prison servant, Pharaoh trusts this man. He promotes him to the second in power over Egypt, only behind himself. Joseph, over the years, marries an Egyptian woman and has, uh, has two children that he names appropriately giving God the glory for all that had been done, all that even Pharaoh had now been made witness of. I tell you, if you think about it too long, you'd think that the Lord was just putting on a show for Pharaoh because he's been right there ringside for every event since Joseph came out of that prison. Through conversation since his promotion, Pharaoh had heard Joseph's heart for his own people and his longing to be with them once again. And now they're here. Now they're in Egypt. I assure you, Pharaoh probably had a more realistic idea how impossible it would be for those Hebrews to come out of Canaan and land in Egypt. And yet they're here. They were gracious in their dealings with Pharaoh. They were humble in their craft and courteous in their acceptance of Egypt, uh, Egypt's hospitality. Remember, from Pharaoh's standpoint, that's Joseph's daddy. I wonder if it crosses jo uh, Pharaoh's mind at any point that Jacob could say, come home. Let's go home. Egypt doesn't deserve this. Let's go home. We don't see it. It's not a threat made in the text, but I wonder if it crosses Pharaoh's mind how delicate this situation is. For some odd amount of years now, he's had to, to not offend Joseph's God. We understand that. And now he's got Joseph's dad here too. But now even Joseph's father stands before Pharaoh and instead of giving him a cursing, he gives him two blessings. Pharaoh's just got to at some point say, Wow. 
What an experience. No Pharaoh before me has ever had this kind of experience with the Hebrews. They've all been liars. Consider Psalm 22, verses 26 through 31. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Our heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. That's Jacob's testimony there at the end. That was Joseph's testimony there at the beginning. Right there in front of Pharaoh. Maybe the same room. God hath done this. God hath given you these dreams. And God hath given me the interpretation of those dreams. And God hath providing seven years of fatness. And God is uh, issuing seven years of famine. Jacob saying, my years are few and difficult. God hath done this. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. Ye are responsible for the witnessing that God hath done this, in other words. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Jesus is just stating a fact here. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Jesus says, let your light so shine, so shine, before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Only eternity will reveal whatever became of Pharaoh's soul, what he did with all that he was made to witness. We can say with confidence, though, that the hand of God was busy before him. God hath done this.